2 Samuel chapter 13. I hope you've made it there. We're continuing a study that, uh, that we started really last week. We're looking at the wrong path. That's the idea here. Um, Jesus said there's one of two paths that you, that, that, you, know, you can go down in life. You can, <clears throat> we're all either on the narrow path that leads to life or we're on the, ride, the wide path, the broad road that leads to destruction. And in, our, in our, our text here, basically, by all accounts, the majority of David's kids look like they're taking the wide path to destruction. Um, and, you know, this is an Im- important kind of subject to talk about when we talk about our kids and we talk about influencing our children on the path that they're going to take, which is what we focused on last week and we'll continue on today. Um, interest- an important subject, because as a, as a father... As a grandfather and as a pastor, I'm very concerned about a trend that I'm seeing. Um, and, and the trend is that we have kids that are raised in the Christian home, raised in the church, and they're going off to college and they're renouncing their faith and they're walking away from the Lord. And it's happening more and more at an alarming rate, and I'm very concerned about it. Um, and man, I just want to talk to us as a body, you know, from the scriptures to be able to say, okay, what can we do with our kids to, to, to be able to do that? Now, we're not just going to focus on our kids today. There's, uh, as we get into it, and we'll, we'll, we'll segue into some different areas. But for starters, I just want to continue on this trajectory and go, man, what is it that we can do to, to, as parents to influence our kids to the narrow road that leads to life and not to do those things that influence them onto the wide road that leads to destruction. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that every kid that goes off to college and renounces his faith, that it, that it comes back to you as a parent. It doesn't always work that way. I mean, biblically, you know, look at Samson. I mean, here's a guy born, spiritually speaking, with a silver spoon in his mouth, godly mom, godly dad, and yet Scripture records first words out of his mouth, I see a woman. You know, saw a woman. Next words, bring her to me. You know, this is what he, and he just sort of go, he's sort of stuck on stupid in his life, you know. And so this happens, but, but for us, I want to know, man, as parents, sometimes we are the contributing factor in our kids to, to which road they're going to go down. Last week, we saw four things that influenced David's children onto the wide path. Now, some of those things he, he, he has responsibility for, some not so much. But we looked at, you know, it, that there was an environment of sin in his home. There was a, an enticement to sin in his life. There was encouragement to sin by the friendships that he kept. And there was an empowerment of sin uh, in, in how, you know, his dad failed to follow through. David, for, the, for his part... For starters, he provided the environment of sin. He took multiple wives, contrary to God's exhortation in Scripture. Uh, He took Bathsheba, uh, committed adultery with her, killed her husband to cover it up. Uh, I I mean, major compromise, and that will mess up the environment that your kids are growing up in. So that, for starters, is what happened in Amnon's life. Amnon is who we looked at last week. David's son, Amnon, will be looking at at, uh, his son Absalom today, but... That was kind of the starter on the, on the path, if you will, towards the, the wide road for Amnon. Uh, and then you add to that, you know, Amnon's enticement uh, to sin. 
uh, and, and then Jonadab's encouragement in his life uh, to sin. And it all contributed to Abnon being well on his way onto the wide path uh, that leads to destruction. Well, in addition to those influencing factors, David also empowered his sons to sin. And this is where we left off last week. We saw that by David indulging his sins and insufficiently responding to their sinful behavior, that he actually empowered and emboldened his sons in their path of sin by the example that David set. And so whereas Amnon followed his father's sinful example in regards to sexual sin, we're going to see today that Absalom follows his father's sinful example in that like father, well, so goes son, he's going to kill his brother. He's going to commit murder, just as David himself committed murder. And, and so we're going to look at that. And by the way, when we talk about Absalom committing murder, which is what he's going to do today in our text, spoiler alert, he's going to kill Amnon. Um, and when we talk about that, you know, we're going to go, okay, look, this guy committed murder and sort of what fed into that, there might be a tendency on our part to, to, to sort of go, well, that doesn't pertain to me because last I checked, I haven't killed anybody. Hope you haven't killed anybody. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> okay, okay, so, <clears throat> um, we might have a tendency to just tune that out. Uh, and uh, if you just saw it right there's a filter. Sometimes I think things and then I think, should I say it, should I not say it? And you just saw that right there. I'm like, no, I'm not going to say it. Okay, so um, we, we might have a tendency just to, to go, you know, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. It doesn't pertain to me. I'm going to kind of do the forensic example here of, of uh, Absalom and him committing murder and, and, you know, it hasn't got much to do with me. Well, Here's what Jesus said. He says, look, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth that defiles him. And he basically said that that's because, you know, what comes out of the mouth, it's the overflow of the heart. And he said, what, what comes out of a man that defiles him, it's things like, you know, adultery and fornication uh, and murders that come out. Not that we physically kill somebody. No, but it's in our heart. And, and that's the thing, is that it's, it's sin in that way. And so there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from the train wreck uh, that is Absalom here. And the first point, if you take a note, you can write it down, and we'll jump right into the text. Absalom was provoked to violence. He was provoked to violence. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 23, And it came to pass... After two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, for you guys into, you know, the geography of the place, it's about 14 miles north of Jerusalem, um, and basically he, he's got a flock of sheep, and, uh, he, and the, the idea of having sheep shearers means it's time to shear the sheep, it's time to go to market, sell, it's payday, basically. For a farmer, payday is when you harvest the crops, for, for, a, for a rancher, that's uh, when you shear the sheep. And so that's the idea here is that after two full years, it's sheep shearing time, it's payday. Um, and uh, so Absalom uh, uh, invited all the king's sons. This would have been, you know, common practice. It's like, hey, party at Absalom's house. You know, it's sheep shearing time. We're going to throw a big, you know, 
party over at my house. Everybody kind of come down. And so, so that's what's going on here. Now, the key to understanding the entire rest of chapter 13 is just right here in verse 23 when it says, after, came to pass after two full years. That's the key to the rest of this. Why? Well, because what we're going to see here, Absalom's fixing to kill his brother. That's the setup. And, and what you got to get is that this all comes to pass after two full years. Man, David, by his indulgence, by his inaction, listen, it's so bad, it's been two full years since Amnon raped Tamar, Absalom's uh, sister. David hasn't done nothing about it. We read last week when it all went down, said David was very angry. So what? Because there was, it was, you know, the effect in, in Amnon's life was stop it or I'll say stop it again, you know. I mean, he does nothing about it. And so Absalom, he's been cooking on this thing for two years. Just, you know, he, and remember, he's the guy that found his sister Tamar immediately after she was raped. She's devastated. He finds her, moves her into his house. And from, the, from that moment on, we find out in the text today that he started cooking on plotting his revenge. He was going to kill Amnon. Now, huge lesson for parents in this. Because what's going on is he's, he's outraged about it. And, and a big part of his outrage is that there's no justice for Tamar. And he knows there's no justice coming. An injustice has been done, and his dad ain't doing diddly about it. Now, Ephesians 6.4 says this, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and in the admonition of the Lord. Look, what Amnon did is wrong. Amnon needs to be brought to justice for what he's done, but Absalom's sin is traceable back to the things that Amnon did and the things that David didn't do. And we need to understand, dads, we need to understand, moms, that our inactivity can really mess our kids up. And, and it's, do not provoke your children to wrath. Now that word provoke, the idea is that we're not to exasperate our children. And there's a lot of ways that we exasperate our children. We, we exasperate them when our discipline is inconsistent, when the kid doesn't know where the line is, when today he gets in trouble for it, but tomorrow you laugh at it. That causes a child to be provoked or, or to be in a place to where they're, they're, they're just exasperated. And, and so <clears throat> we're not to do that. Um, they can become exasperated when our expectations are unclear or when we treat them unfairly, or when we show favoritism. These things all contribute to, an, to exasperating our kids. And one of the most destructive ways that we exasperate our children is when we have little or no discipline in the home. Little or no discipline in the home. It absolutely exasperates children. Why? Well, because it offers them no correction. And they, they when you don't, when you give a kid sort of, you know, uh, 
free reign to how he's going to live his life without any correction, without any discipline. In the short term, man, it totally seems like freedom, seems awesome. But in the long term, it messes the kid up. And here's why. The reason it messes the kid up is because it ushers in all sorts of consequences, chief among them guilt, shame, and a lack of peace. Why? Well, because what happens is the, the way God has designed you tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that he's put eternity into the human heart. Uh, in the prophet Jeremiah speaks of God engraving sin on the hearts of his people. You read in, in Hebrews chapter 8 where God puts the law in our minds and he, he writes it on the tablets of our heart. And so what happens then in a home where discipline is lacking, the result in the heart and in the mind of the child is guilt and shame and unrest because it violates their conscience. Because God has already placed it within their heart and within their mind that their behavior is wrong. It always cracks me up when you're talking to an atheist and they maintain that, you know, there's, everything's relative in life. Like, there's no standards. It's like, what's, you have your truth and I have my truth. But then, you know, if I was to punch them in the nose, they would say, well, that's wrong. Well, who says? My truth says I can punch you in the nose. But inherently, everybody in their heart of hearts, in their minds, they know the difference between right and wrong. Why? Because God has written right and wrong on the tablets of your heart, on the tablets of your mind. And so what happens then if you have children and you raise them without consequences, you raise them without discipline for their actions, then what happens is it violates their conscience. And so the result is guilt and shame. And unrest. That's why discipline is so important because it brings correction. It offers rest from guilt and shame. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find, here it is, rest for your souls. See, so, so when you withhold discipline, the child doesn't find this rest. Rather, they are provoked to wrath. Now, this is exacerbated. It's increased. It's compounded when you bring siblings into the mix. Why? Well, because the lack of discipline in the home typically translates into a lack of justice, which also produces wrath. You know, when my kids were growing up, they had a friend in the neighborhood, um, several friends, and uh, they had a single mom. And there in the house, there was, you know, a significant lack of discipline. Why? Well, because there wasn't m- enough a mom to go around. She wasn't, she wasn't around for the follow-through, circumstantially. So what happened was you had the, the kids dealing with, you know, the, the guilt, the shame, the lack of peace because, because they haven't been properly disciplined. And so what, the way guilt and shame and lack of peace works out in your life is through wrath, the expression of wrath. Through, because, because you're, you're feeling all of this conviction and this inner conflict because you've transgressed the law that's written on your heart and on your mind. And so you act out. And what happens when you've got siblings in the process is that it all rolls downhill. So consequently, you know, we saw the, the, the youngest, the, the baby of the family, the, the boy, well, he was, a, he was a bitter, upset, angry little guy. Why? Because it all rolled downhill. And it all stemmed to this lack 
of discipline that was transpiring uh, in their home. Now, that's the case here. Tamar gets raped. There's no consequences. Absalom is filled with wrath, filled with indignation. Now, point of application before we move on, and I know I'm focusing on your kids just for, just for a little bit here, but my question for you is this. Are you provoking your children to wrath? Now, I'm going to put a series of qualifiers here. We'll put them on the screen for you one by one, but and you might want to just, if you want to take a picture of it because we're going to move through. You might not have time to write them all down if you're taking notes, but are you provoking your children to wrath? Here's, here's the next question. Have you established clear boundaries for them? Uh, do you follow through with appropriate discipline in their life? You know, or are you a threatening, repeating parent? Stop it or I'll say stop it again, you know, kind of thing. Are you consistent with your children? Are, are you instructing your children in righteousness? Hugely important question there, instructing them in righteousness. Moses was talking to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he said this, he said, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, this is a critically important set of verses for parents. Because a lot of times what will happen in parenting is that parents fail to to give their children what we call the moral reason why. And and that's important because what happens is, well, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you know somebody who's got a kid and as long as dad is around or mom is around... The kid obeys, but the minute mom and dad are out of the picture, they're a nightmare. They disobey, right? Probably what you're seeing is what's referred to as authoritative parenting, the, the product of authoritative parenting. And authoritative parenting is, is, is where a parent is around to, for the follow-through to tell the kids, no, you're not going to do that. But what they've never done or have done a very poor job of is telling them why they're not supposed to do that. And this is why this instruction in Deuteronomy is so important because he says, well, first of all, the word has to be in your heart. That's a great starting point, mom, dad, that you're hiding God's word in your heart that you understand the moral reason why. And you need to think through, why am I telling my kids this instruction? Why am I telling them that instruction? You better be able and have thought through back to God's word to say, why did I tell them not to do that? You know, a a, a silly example. You know, you don't take a candy bar from the store because God has said in his word, thou shalt not steal. Okay? That's one of the ten commandments. one of the big ten, son. You don't do that. Okay? And so... You need to have God's word in your heart. But he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And here, look, at, look at the language. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, it's situational. As you're going through life, you say, no, you, you do not hit your brother. Hey, the, the Bible says that you're to love one another. 
The Bible says that you're to turn the other cheek. You know, you need to give to them the moral reason why. Why? Because what you're doing is you're instilling within your child a compass, their own compass. So when you ain't around, they have their own compass so they can understand this is right and this is why this is right and this is why I need to do it. Because otherwise what you're teaching the kid is I don't do that because mom said so and mom's here to follow through so when mom's around I won't do it. But when mom's gone, doesn't matter that mom didn't say so because there's no other compelling reason for me to obey that. Does that make sense? All right, so, so what happens here is that because of David's indulgence and because of David's inaction, well, Absalom was provoked to violence. Now, moving on, second point, if you're taking notes, Absalom plotted vengeance. He plotted vengeance. Chapter 13, continuing in verse 24, it says, Then Absalom came to the king, and he said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers, Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. In other words, hey, dad, it's time, it's payday, cashing out, going to throw a huge party at my house, got a big rave going on, dude, and uh, come on, we're going we're gonna to get down over there, and would you guys come over to my house for this big party? Verse 25, but the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Dude, if I come over to your house, I got my, the whole entourage is going to come with me, you know, as the king. I got all the secret service agent. Everybody's going to be there. I got, you know, and that's just me. And then your brothers and all their families and stuff. No, we don't want to be a burden on you. And then he urged him, meaning Absalom said, oh, come on, dad, come to the, the, to the party. But he, David, would not go. And he, David, blessed Absalom, right? So he's like, oh, bless you. Thank you for inviting me, son. Just can't do it right now. I just don't want to put you out like that. Verse 26, then Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? Now, you're picking up on some suspicion here, right? And and, and it's not too thinly, uh, it's not too much of a stretch to read between the lines here and go, yeah, David's a little... Nervous here. Why is he nervous? Because of what Amnon did to Absalom's sister, right? And now Absalom's been playing it way cool. Like when, Am, when, when, he, when he found Tamar and she's wigging out and, and all, and he's like, you know, hey, come, come live with me. Be cool. He's your brother. And now we're going to read here in a few verses that, you know, it wasn't because he was, hey, let's just sweep this thing under the rug and let it go. It was, hey, let's, let's be cool here because I'm going to kill this guy at the first chance I get, right? And so David, you know, he's, he's, he, he knows his kids. He knows what this guy's capable of. And so he's, he's like, well, why do you want Amnon there, right? You know, and, and oh, is this when it's all going down? Now, it goes on, and basically he says... Uh, He says, if not, let my brother Amnon go with me. The king says, why should he go with you? Verse 27, but Absalom urged him. And so he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now remember, Amnon is the the next in line for, for the throne. So if the king can't go, 
it's normal for the next in line, the next in charge to go. When the president can't go to some important function, oftentimes he'll send the vice president, right? And so this is kind of the case there. It's like, hey, this, this is going on. It's significant that he can't go. So, you know, it's, you should send him kind of deal. And so, so that's what's going on. He goes, all right, I'll send him. I'll send all, all of the brothers with you. Verse 28, now Absalom had commanded his servants saying, watch now. When Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him, do not be afraid, have I not commanded you? Now, what we've got here is a mob hit, right? This is a full, whatever mafia show you've watched, this is always how it goes down. They're like, hey, come on over for a party, and then they whack you, you know, and that's the drill. So this is a mafia hit. And Absalom is as cool as a cucumber, man. He is like just a typical, you know, mob boss in this whole thing. He's, he's like, he doesn't react or say anything to, to Amnon after what he did to his sister. Didn't say anything good or bad. Bides his time for two full years. Tells his sister, be cool. His time's coming. Two full years. And he apparently, according to what we're reading here and what we will read... He used that time to think through all the details of the hit. He's like, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to time it, have it coincide with a normal event. It's sheep shearing time, throwing a party, normal, totally normal. And, 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 you know, and we'll get him drunk. So he's like, hey, we'll get the guy all liquored up, and then, you know, he'll be easier prey. And he even uses David to help set the trap. Hey, Dad, come on. Probably knew his dad would be like, oh, I don't want to put you out. Probably knew that. So he uses David to set the trap. He's got all of this all set up. Now, there's a sad irony to all of this. Because just as David committed adultery and made Uriah drunk and then murdered him, so too what we've got here is Amnon has committed this sexual sin. He's committed rape and incest. Amnon was made drunk and he's going to be murdered. So there's this weird irony, this sad irony that's going on. And Nathan the prophet's words to David are certainly starting to, to be fulfilled here. Remember, Nathan told David, hey, the sword's not going to depart from your house. And this is what we see here. The sword is not departing from David's house. Now, one of the takeaways for us at this point, as we go through the story and on this second point of Absalom plotting vengeance, well, what's the point of application for us? Here's my question. How do you handle it when you have been wronged? How do you handle it when you've been wronged? See, the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, right? And typically, when we're in, but it's in his death, but the way that seems right to a man, hey, when we're wrong, typically the way that seems right to us, well, it goes along with that old adage, don't get mad, get even. We're like, yeah, that sounds about right. In fact, I venture to say, and I know this is true because the Holy Spirit's confirmed it in my heart, that there are those of you that are here today and you're dealing with an issue where somebody has wronged you, they've hurt you. And maybe there's been sort of this thought process of how do I get even? How do I get vengeance? How do I get justice? And, and that's, you know, what Absalom is thinking here. I want some justice for my sister. She's been wronged. I want to get some justice for her. Now, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this in James chapter 1. He said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, here it is, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, and then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. And then he says this, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, he uses the word desire a couple times. And that word desire, in the Greek, it's the word uh, epithumea, epithumea, and here's what it means. It means a deep desire or longing. And, and what happens is he says, look, you're you're tempted and when you're drawn away by a deep desire and longing and, and you're enticed with that and then when this deep desire and longing has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full, full, born, or full grown brings forth death. Now in Absalom's case, what is his deep desire and longing? Vengeance, justice. Right, And he's been cooking on this for two years. Now, weird story, surreal experience in my life. When, when I was, uh, prior to becoming a paramedic, I, I was an emergency medical technician. I drove an ambulance. And, uh, and so, so years and years ago, before, before I met Brenda, um, you know, I was driving an ambulance. I actually started my senior year of high school. And so... So I, I get called to this, and I worked in Torrance, which is where I grew up, and, uh, and so we get dispatched to, to the scene of a shooting. Cops and fire department, paramedics are on scene, and so by the time we get there, the, the paramedics have pronounced this gal dead. Now, without getting into the gory details, basically, someone knocked on her door, she opened the door, and they shot her dead, and she was dead in her foyer, and we get there, and uh, roll up to her house, she's there behind El Paso Cantina, if you're familiar with the area, that's kind of where this whole thing went down, and so there she is, and uh, she's dead, and the cops, when we get there, fire department's clearing the scene, they're, now they're, it's a coroner's case, and so the cops say to us, hey, would you guys, would, would you come lift the, the sheet up, we want to take some crime scene photos, we're like, yeah, all right. So, picking up the sheet, I don't recognize the gal at all. Well, turns out, she was an old next-door neighbor. She was married to, to the guy who, who, ironically, was a Torrance cop. And, uh, and I, I don't know, she was his second wife, third wife, I don't know, but she wasn't his first wife. But at any rate, so, he had made his fortune in real estate. Bought a bunch of houses all throughout, throughout the city. And, and subsequently he became ill. He, he left everything to all of his children. Some, some stuff to his wife certainly as well. Well, she lawyered up after he died. And she cheesed her kids out of all their inheritance. So this kid, who I used to play with, cooks on this thing. Decides to show up at this gal's side. This gal cooked me cookies at one point for our family, you know. So I'm just weird, weird stuff. Shows up at her door, kills her dad. Now, this was that deep desire and longing in his heart was for vengeance, revenge. Justice. 
And listen, I ask you the question, who are you angry with today? What is, what's, what's the thing that you've been cooking on for a period of time? What's the thing that, that you're outraged about and you're like, I demand justice here and it's just consuming your, 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 your thoughts and, and all. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we, here it is, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. See, if you've been cooking on something, and I venture to say some of you here today, it's not by accident that you're here. That there's something that you've been wrong. You're demanding justice. You're demanding that, hey, this needs to, 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 to happen. And if you've been cooking on this thing, what happens is there's no room for you to take that thought captive. There's no room for you to be in a place to where you give thought to, to peace. Why? Because you're plotting violence. And so, so you don't have the, that, that you're not in that place. You haven't set yourself up for victory to take a thought captive. Why? Well, because you're pouring gasoline on that thought. And you're thinking through and you're cooking up all the way and you're rehashing it over and over. And they said this and then I said that and then they said this and oh, they're just, you know, and you cook on it and you cook on it and you cook on it. And it's always the same result. Someone's got to die, you know. Now, You gotta, you gotta get the place where you can take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and you gotta be able in your mind to be able to go, you know what? I, I gotta leave room for thoughts of, of making peace in this relationship. And you might say to that, Pastor Ted, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what they did to me. They don't deserve peace. And my response to that is, yeah, maybe they don't. I mean, certainly we look at this situation that gets us here on this subject, and we go, does Amnon deserve some peace? Does a rapist Deserve peace. Well, no. But God said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And so what we need to do is we need to take the thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we need to leave room for peace. Because listen, God made room for peace for us. He made room in his thoughts for peace towards us. Listen, Jeremiah the prophet said this, for I know the thoughts, speaking By the inspiration of God, this is God speaking through this prophet. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And then you'll call upon me and go to pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, says the Lord, and I'll bring you back from your captivity. And some of you right now today, you are in captivity to the anger and bitterness in your heart. And God wants to bring you out of that captivity. He wants to set you free from the captivity of anger and bitterness and resentment. Jesus said this in Matthew's Gospel. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is a peacemaker. He wants His children to be peacemakers. Well, Absalom, he's not even going to consider that. He's provoked to violence. He's plotted his vengeance. Thirdly, we see that Absalom perpetrated his vengeance. 
Verse 29 says, So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. They executed the hit. And then all the king's sons arose and each one got in his limo and he took off. That's, that's, That's here. They all get on their mules. They all fled. And it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Now that's the way it goes down, right? When there's a disaster, first reports aren't reliable. And so here the report comes that they're all dead. Absalom killed them all. And not one of them is left. Verse 31. And so the king arose, tore his garments, lay on the ground, and all of his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Okay, get the picture here. Because like... Here's what goes through my mind as I read this. I think, well, somebody came to me and said, hey, all your kids were together and your son lost it and he killed, all, he killed everybody. My response would not be weeping and mourning and wailing. My response would be, there's no way that happened. I, I would be like shocked, doubtful, like there's no way that happened. But, but what stands out to me is David's response is like, that totally could have happened. Like, he could have totally done that. I mean, his, it just his family is jacked up, man. So he's like, that, like, I could see him doing that. So he's freaking out, right? And um, tears his garments, lays on the ground, and, and so on. He's, he, he's, uh, he, he's freaking out. Um, and then, verse 32, Jonadab. Now, you remember Jonadab. He's the clown that caused a lot of this problem in the first place. He's the guy that went to Amnon and said, Hey, you want your sister? Here's how you can rape her. I mean, he gave him all of the stuff. So Jonadab shows up, the son of Shimea, David's brother. He answers, talking about answering David, weeping and wailing. And he said, let, let not my Lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister, Tamar. So this guy is slime bag, sleazy. Not only does he work this side of the fence to tell this guy how he can do the act, but clearly he's been in conversation with Absalom, knows all about that this guy's going to get whacked, right? He knows it's going down. And perversity of perversity, he goes to David and trying to comfort him, say, hey, it's cool, man. Amnon's just dead. Not all of them. It's just Amnon that's dead, right? Cheer up, basically, is what he's saying here. And, and so he says, uh, let, my, let not my lord, take, the king, take this thing to heart, to think that the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Verse 34 says, then uh, Amnon, or uh, then Absalom fled. Now this is the first of three times that the Holy Spirit's going to make us aware that Absalom fled. It says, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. So what, get the scene, what's gone down is, is Absalom, he, he has, you know, Amnon whacked, and then everybody jumps in their limos and bails, and he jumps in his, and he bails, they're all going different ways, right? And so this now is what's going on, all of David's sons, they're all coming down, this watchman looks, there's dust coming up, he's like, ah, I, I, I see him, here they come. And um, Jonadab, verse 35, said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming. As your servant said, so it is. And so it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Also, the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. 
But Absalom fled, and he went to Talmai, the son of uh, uh, Amahud, the king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son every day. And so what's going on here is, in the language as we read, there's, there's multiple Hebrew words here used, one after the other, and they're all emphasizing and, and, and pointing out that, that there is this great, severe weeping. It, it, in the Hebrew, it speaks of this unspeakable anguish and, and exceedingly great sorrow and an overflow of tears. And as a parent, you can, you can only begin to imagine that there would just be that overwhelming grief, that overwhelming sorrow. Listen, this is always the result of the wrath of man. Overwhelming tears, overwhelming sorrow. James says in James 1.20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That word righteousness that's used there, it's a very telling word. It means the state of him who is as he ought to be. The wrath of God does not produce the state of him who is as he ought to be. In other words, God has a desire for you, for me, for us, for the way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that our life is. There is a state in which we ought to live and and function. And that is a state of, of, of righteousness, of holiness, of purity before God. And what happens here is that Absalom, by exercising wrath and giving place to wrath, he brings down... Now, we know this intellectually, but we don't know this in the moment. You married men know this. You get upset. You think something. You can think it all day long. The moment it comes out, it's always worse. You You never say it, and in hindsight, in reflection, go, I'm so glad I said that. No, usually you're on the couch going, why did I say that, right? So, so the thing is, is that it always brings out when you exercise wrath and you don't take that thought captive, well, it doesn't produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't produce the state that God wants you to be in. Now, how do we produce the righteousness of God? How do we get into that state of how we're supposed to be? I'm glad you asked. Put it on the screen for you. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor seats in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now I'll leave this scripture up, and I want you to notice the progression. There's a walking, there's a standing, there's a sitting. And he's saying, look, you want to be blessed? You don't want to do this. You do not want to travel this path. And listen, this path that he describes here, it's often a path that we take right in our heads, right in that space, right between your ears. It's the, this is the path we take. We take a walk with the ungodly counsel of our thoughts. We've been wronged, and so now I start cooking on just that ungodly counsel that comes. You should say this. You should do this. You should, you know, whatever. And then before you know it, what happens is you're standing with your feet planted in, a, in that sinful path, and ultimately, you're sitting in scornful judgment. 
And so what happened is you've walked this path and it's brought you from righteousness to a place of unrighteousness. And from there, like Absalom, the next step is inevitable. You're going to perpetrate violence. And so the result is always this unspeakable anguish and this exceedingly great sorrow and this overflow of tears because you've given place to wrath and you haven't been able to take that thought captive. He perpetrated vengeance. Well, fourthly and finally, Absalom paid a price for that vengeance. And that's what we read there. It says in verse 37, But Absalom fled, and he went to Talmai, the son of Ahimud, uh, king of Jeshur. That's his grandfather, his, his, mom's, uh, his mom's dad. And David mourned for his son every day. Which son? Absalom or Amnon? Probably both. And so Absalom fled and he went to Jeshur and, there, and was there three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. This is where we're going to start next week in this particular verse. And we're going to, we're going to deal with that because there's two radically different translations of that verse. One, one group of, of commentators looks at it and says, you know what, he, he was comforted uh, concerning Amnon because he was dead, right? And, he, and there he, he longed to go to Absalom. One, one group of translators say he longed to go to Absalom to bring him to justice. That's why he longed to go to Absalom because he wanted to lay hands on him and bring him to justice. Whole other group says, no, he got over the death of his other son. Now he just wants to bring his son back. We're going to deal with that next week, but what I want you to focus on in closing is the three times the Holy Spirit says, Absalom fled. Absalom fled. Absalom fled. What is up here? This is always the result of sinful disobedience. Always the result of sinful disobedience is that we run. We run. We run from God, we run from His people. And you see it over and over again in Scripture, Adam and Eve. They sin against God. What do they do? They run away and hide. Peter betrays the Lord, denies Him three times. What's he do? He runs away, weeps bitterly. Judas betrays the Lord, runs away, hangs himself. Next week, we're going to do, deal with this, take a, a deeper look at how God devises means to bring us back. But this morning, I want to close with, the, with the, the lesson and the exhortation that there's a price to pay. There's a price that we pay when we take vengeance into our own hands. And it all, always costs us more than we could ever think. There is a price for you to pay when you carry anger and rage, and wrath, and malice. It takes a heavy toll. Medical doctors will tell you, if you insist on carrying with you anger, and bitterness, and unforgiveness, it's just going to make you sick physically. It's been said, hanging on to anger and bitterness in, in a broken relationship is like taking poison, taking poison trying to get even with the person that wronged you. Because it just kills you. Physiologically, we know that's true. Spiritually, we know that's true. But listen, here's what Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He said, Repay no one evil for evil. 
Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What's our application here as we close? Well, there's several. Listen, parents, you better discipline your kids. If you provide an atmosphere where your kids get away with murder, then what's going to happen is you're going to, produce, you're going to set an environment where you, your kids produce wrath. And so, so there's, a, there's a lesson there for parents, and we need to take a walk with that. We, there is a needfulness for the follow-through, but your kid's very life may depend on it. The bigger lesson of this ending part of 2 uh, Samuel 13, it has to do with this issue of, of vengeance. It has to do with this issue of hanging on to the bitterness and the, and the divide. And, and as I said, I know that there, that there are many here we're dealing with that. We're, we're human beings. At one point or another, people are going to offend us. And we've got to figure out how to handle it. What do we do when a situation has happened when we have been wronged and where it's just justice seems to be nowhere in sight? What do we do with that? Listen, the lesson for us is that we need to be able to surrender that to the Lord and not, and not execute that wrath because it doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. And so as we come to the communion table today in prayer and finishing our message, listen, we end the service today at the very thing that reminds us that God forgave us and we're called to forgive others. Jesus told that wonderful story about a rich king, had a man owe him an ocean of debt. He couldn't repay in five lifetimes. And he said, you know what, I'm going to forgive him just in my grace. And the guy promptly goes out, refuses to forgive the guy that owes him the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks. A word gets back to the king and his response is to say, I forgave you and this is how you're going to respond? We got to do business with God today.